Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Walhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Hedlund, Dr. Susan Pendergrass, and Patrick Ishmael from Show Me Institute. Aaron, so hopefully we're starting to come out of the pandemic. We're in a little bit of a hot spot here in uh, Missouri, where I sit in St. Louis. There's been some talks of more mass mandates and uh, maybe some, some other guidance coming our way. As you look at the economy, what do you think are our next six months, our next three months, medium, short-term uh, prospects are for, for this recovery that we've been experiencing? Well, first of all, good to be on. I would say the past year and a half has been quite an exceptional period in terms of economic performance. We had the biggest economic fall-off ever, and then also the strongest rebound ever, I think largely enabled by some very robust uh, fiscal support from the federal government, and also the rapid development of a very effective vaccine. But as you mentioned, there are definitely some dark clouds on the horizon that obscure things a bit. So number one, economically speaking, we have inflation running at over 5%, which is the highest it's been in over a decade. In fact, there have only been two other months in the past 30 years when inflation has been as high as it is currently. So the question is, how long does that go? Uh, and of course, you've got prospects of a, a major federal spending spree on the horizon. And then COVID is, is not yet gone. Right? For many people, I, I think people were hoping it would be kind of something in the distant past. And certainly we're in a much better position than we were before. But with uh, new variants and low vaccination rates in some places, you do have spread. And uh, you know, I think that's causing people to consider you know, what, is, what are responsible actions to take? I think there's probably gonna be some people who are gonna overreach, uh, but there are probably some responsible things that we should at least discuss and put out there. Patrick, can you remind listeners what the recently signed legislation uh, would do in the event that a local municipality issued a, a mass mandate or capacity limits? Yeah, I mean, it mostly deals with substantive shutdowns of local businesses, and it introduces a political component where the local governing body that would be instituting this lockdown, if you will, uh, would have to vote, depending on the situation, either every 21 or 30 days. Um, and a lot of this is bound up with whether the governor uh, has established or is continuing a state of emergency for the state as well. So there are a lot of gears that are kind of in, in motion in determining whether uh, what what day period is, is required for these uh, uh, restrictions uh, to be renewed. Uh, but I, I do think that we're in a much better liberty situation this year than we were last year. I, I can't imagine if you know, if you told me in at the end of 2019 that we were going to have kind of unilateral <laughs> decision making about who could be open and who couldn't be open, who was essential and who wasn't essential, um, I, I I wouldn't have believed you. That it, it seems so counter to what uh, you know people being able to freely associate with one another and make their own determinations about risk. Um, those I think uh, are. It, it's, it's even retrospectively, it's shocking that it took so long to establish protections for small businesses. I mean, Walmarts, uh, the Walmarts of the world were able to go through this entire uh, pandemic to date because the pandemic pandemic is continuing in, in different forms. Uh, they were able to remain open and remain safe 
largely without incident. Um, and we, we've talked about this before. In Missouri, they, we actually had a kind of protection for the Second Amendment and Second Amendment uh, folks who sold uh, guns or ammunition um, that during a, a state of emergency, uh, local governments couldn't shut them down. And of course, gun sellers are large. They're like Cabela's. They're small. They're your, you know, your local pawn shop. And then they're, they're, you know, medium sized ones as well. And all of them were able to provide services throughout the pandemic um, uh, and do it safely. So whatever ends up happening uh, in the next few months, I, I really do hope that uh, local governments you know, that they provide good advice, but mainly that it's advice and that, you know, individuals and small businesses are allowed to make their own decisions about risk informed by government uh, health officials. But I, I think that the uh, excesses of government intervention and government lockdowns, I, I hope those are a thing of the past. Uh, but we will see in the in the weeks and months ahead whether we get some sort of a uh, recurrence from last year. I, I I at least hope the excesses are not nearly as bad this year as the excesses that we saw last year. Susan, it's the third week of July. Schools, I think, go back the middle of August. What do we know so far about school reopenings for the upcoming year? Yeah, so basically piggybacking on what everyone else is saying. Some districts have already said Kansas City has already said they're probably going to have a mask mandate. There are some schools and districts in the Kansas City area that have said they are not going to have mask mandates, no matter what. St. Louis Public Schools is considering a mask mandate. And I think as more information becomes available in the next week or so uh, regarding the outbreaks in Missouri, I think you're going to see a mix of this. Green County, where Springfield is, they've gotten a lot of heat nationally. You might see some mask mandates in schools. And I think that, number one, parents are exhausted. It's been a year and a half now that they've been dealing with, yes, no, I don't know how it's going to look. Um, they, I think, are probably ready for their kids to get back to school. Now they're going to have to make decisions again. And I think, again, you're going to find parents in situations where one district over, they're not wearing masks. And where their kids are going, you are wearing masks. And I think more, it's going to open up the chance that more parents will be unhappy this year when I think the expectation was that we were going to get back to normal. We're going to put this behind us. We're going to figure out how much learning loss there's been. We're going to start getting on top of that with tutoring and extra help and rearranging the school day. And here we are now we're back talking about masks and no one wants to talk about masks right now, unless we're talking about them in the rear view mirror. So I just think it's going to be more upheaval and um, it's going to make it more clear to me. I mean, this is the lens I view a lot of things through, but why parents should be able to choose. If they don't want to send their kids to a school with a mask mandate, they should have another option. And there's going to be a whole bunch of people that don't have that right now. Aaron, on this podcast, we've talked about, Susan's talked a lot about the uh, education impact of learning loss, students loss, we don't know where they are, the, the educational impact of shutting schools. Are we far enough out now that we have data on the economic impact of closing schools and what that does to the, the workforce and people's ability to go to work every day when their kid can't go to school? I think this ultimately could be the biggest long-term scarring effect, aside from obvious loss of life, uh, from the pandemic and all the closures and things. Um, I mean, there's some early evidence to, sh to show that there's definitely been widening opportunity gaps. Some schools have been able to adapt well. Certain families with more means have been able to adapt a little better. It's been tough for everybody, I recognize. Uh, while some students have some 
fallen off the grid in a sense. And so there's some early evidence to suggest kind of falling behind learning, but I think it's probably going to take some time to see more and more of it. I mean, there have been some scholars from uh, the University of Pennsylvania and elsewhere and Northwestern who have put together some data and some, some methodologies to try to anticipate the losses, and it's going to be pretty severe. And I would say, you know, th this is such a peculiar circumstance, this pandemic. You, you really have kind of two divergent perspectives and and, I, and let me just kind of shed a little bit of light on this because I, I dealt with this from within the White House last year, which is you've got on the one hand public health officials, some of whom are of course very professional and all that, but they tend to view human behavior uh, through a very narrow lens. I mean, I, I actually interacted <clears throat> with some of these people and they have these very sophisticated computer models to try to project out where the, where the COVID is gonna go. But in these sophisticated models, their modeling of people's behavior is, is where basically people ignore risk entirely. So in other words, the natural consequence of some of these simulations is that the only way you can stop the spread of the virus is for heavy-handed government mandates and restrictions. And of course, this is something that the Trump administration didn't want, but public health officials throughout the country would sometimes advocate for it. Uh, but on the other side, I mean, absolutely, you know, we are a country based on liberty, but you do have this concept in economics called externalities where what I do doesn't just affect me, it affects others. And uh, you know, pre-vaccine, that made things complicated, right? Because it's not just about managing my own risk, I might accidentally spread it to someone else. That's where the vaccine is such a game changer. You know, right now, anybody who is concerned about getting COVID has a 90% effective way to prevent themselves from getting it. So the rationale for going to anything remotely resembling lockdowns is, is just not there at all. I, I, would, I would throw in, though, I mean, even when we talk about vaccinations, and I'm not a, a public health official, so I, I don't want to speak in, you know, expertly on this, but it is still possible as someone who is vaccinated to get COVID. I mean, we had an example of this just in the last week or so where there was a delegation from Texas who they were vaccinated. Uh, and they were spreading it through DC as they were going to meetings. So, and, and to me, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I think the vaccination is a game changer. It gives the opportunity to protect people who are in high risk situations. But I, and, and, and I think like uh, Aaron says, I, I think at the same time, you have to balance, you know, the, the, you know, the externality aspect and the liberty aspect. But at the same time, I, I, I do feel like the vaccine has a, particular role in, in the idea that, you know, we're going to lock down unless we have 100% vaccination rates, which is not going to happen. I know that Aaron's not advocating for that anyway, but for those who think, well, we need to vaccinate everyone, otherwise we're going to threaten everyone with lockdowns from here on out. I don't think it's it's reasonable. And again, um, we, we need to have a better and targeted approach to protecting people. We know who the high risk individuals are. It's the old, it's the sick. And if you're not old and if you're not sick, uh, vaccinated or not, you're, you're much lower risk. And, and I, I would hate to have government policies instituted, like, like Aaron says, where you know, we're going for no risk. Life is risky. And, and I think that people need to be allowed to make their individual choices about what is best for them. And at some point, the country has to move uh, you know, it has to address every public health issue. It has to deal with it as best they can. But at some point, we as a country have to move forward and allow people to have 
lives, allow kids to learn, um, uh, you know, to the, to the extent that we're, we're, you know, having kids uh, wear masks at school, I sure hope that's based in the science and not performative because kids under 12 are generally speaking a, a low risk group in COVID. Um, so um, I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out of the pandemic. I know that everyone's trying to get out of the pandemic, but I hope that it happens sooner rather than later and, and isn't contingent on uh, us curing COVID because there are very few diseases that we've cured so far uh, and COVID seems like it's going to be around for a while. Right. And just to clarify, I, I completely agree. I, I'm not suggesting vaccine mandates by any means. In fact, what I'm suggesting is the opposite, which is that if I'm worried about getting COVID, I can just get the vaccine and I don't have to worry about what other people do. So the idea that we have to impose all these restrictions on other people's behavior is, is really just not very sensible at this point. Last question about COVID, then I promise we'll move on. Susan, uh, if, if I'm a parent and I see we're six weeks away, five weeks away from my kid going back to school and it, you know, it's questionable whether it's going to be open or not, what advice do you have for, for parents out there to, to prepare for maybe that eventuality? Well, I mean, one concern is that um, this hybrid schooling model is not going to be allowed after July 31st. It's, that's a, it was a relaxed regulation that goes back into effect. School districts won't be able to do that. I would say look into local education hubs like Boys and Girls Clubs and churches and YMCAs that have set up programs where your child can be somewhere and look to see which ones are requiring masks and which ones aren't. For the most part, I don't think they do require masks. And so I think if a school district does it, it's going to be an all or nothing. You're going to have to wear them. I suspect that what's going to happen to parents is they're going to be, get hit with this information very last minute. And as a matter of fact, school could start with no masks and switch back to masks. So I think parents are going to be feeling that whipsaw again. And um, I just hope that they you know, work to expand the opportunities and the options that are available for them. Aaron, in the opening, you mentioned inflation as a concern. And I think over the last couple of weeks, we've all um, learned a maybe, maybe a new word for some, but transitory, the T word that we hear all the time. How long can inflation be and still be classified as transitory? And do you think the current inflation is transitory? Unfortunately, there is no precise definition of transitory. It's perhaps in the eye of the beholder. Uh, the Federal Reserve you know, has almost its own language, its own Fed speak language. Uh, if I were to kind of draw a fuzzy line between transitory and non-transitory, I would say whether inflation extends to 2022 or not. I think it's probably likely that we're gonna keep seeing relatively high inflation numbers for the next several months, uh, but 2022 is kind of the big key. Now, what is my forecast? I mean, that's a dangerous game as always when it comes to economic forecasting, but let me just put out a couple maybe important facts. One is that according to JP Morgan Chase, people are still sitting on checking accounts that are 60% more flush than they were pre-pandemic. So with all the stimulus checks and government money going out, and now we have these basically child tax credit payments going out, I believe on a monthly basis, uh, people are sitting on a lot of money and they're gonna to wanna to spend some of that. And that by itself will contribute to inflationary pressures. On the other side, you've got these labor shortages, which are ongoing, we have, you know, record job openings, and we're still nearly 6 million, sorry, nearly 7 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic. So the, com the combination of you know, supply shortages and surging demand is going to keep putting pressure on prices. Now, I'm hoping that as these kind of ridiculous 
federal unemployment benefit supplements go away. I mean, they've already kind of doing that in Missouri, but they'll also go away nationwide in September, that maybe that should ease the supply shortage side and, and make things a little more moderate. I'm not concerned about 70s, 80s level. I don't think we're going to get to double digits, but it will still be concerning even if we're running at 5%. I don't know. I'm, I'll be really curious to see how long it lasts because I think people are going to be going to, are going to begin getting very frustrated with that. Um, I and also I know that the prices of cars are, or used cars is supposedly starting to stabilize. Prices of houses is supposedly starting to stabilize. But we've been in this like this extended period of time where you can't order anything because it's all on back order. And I I just hope that we can stop hearing that from every supplier. Like, well, we can't get access to those products or we can't ship because it's overseas. Like, I hope that we can begin to put those kinks in the the supply system behind us. Aaron, there was an article in the Post-Dispatch last week or the week before, and it said that uh, St. Louis housing prices were at a record level, something to, to that effect. Uh, as an economist, do you look at the current environment and are you worried about a housing bubble at all? Well, the housing market is definitely on fire. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in fact, really, the housing market has been on a pretty good tear since it bottomed out in 2011. It just happened to really accelerate during 2020. That said, I wouldn't call it a bubble. Uh, in particular, there are different measures of mortgage risk. So, for example, you can look at the percentage of people whose mortgage payment income is above some threshold or whose mortgage size relative to the value of their house is above some threshold. And if you were gonna look back at 2005, 2006, those numbers were looking pretty bad. Now, at the time, I don't think most people picked up on how risky that was until it happened. But when you look at the numbers now, those are actually still very reasonable. So it's true, house prices are going nuts, but it doesn't seem to be this kind of leverage-fueled boom as it was last time. So what do I think is going on? I think you've got still basically record low mortgage rates, which are allowing people to borrow a lot more and have a still moderate payment. And now with the kind of post-pandemic world, you have suddenly a bunch of people realizing if there's ever another pandemic where we can't go out and God help us hope there never is, little a pandemic or certainly not that kind of policy response. But if there ever is, people are thinking, I want to make sure I'm living in a nice place. I've got enough space. I've got everything kind of upgraded and comfortable and, and whatnot. So that's why there was a, a major push for home renovations and home building. And that's contributed to record lumber prices. Although those have actually come down a bit in the past couple of months, which is probably also causing people to wait and see, you know, to see where things level off. All right, moving on to our final topic. On Monday in Jefferson City, there was a hearing. Patrick, what were they talking about? They were talking about critical race theory. Uh, Senator Cindy, Cindy O'Laughlin and a number of members from the House uh, invited a number of members of the public to talk about their uh, concerns about CRT. They invited one of the biggest proponents of critical race theory, uh, Dr. LeGarrette King of Mizzou, uh, who has been advising a number of districts on uh, CRT-related issues informing their curriculum. Um, there was a, a, a bit of a kerfuffle in Francis Howell about uh, what was being advised there. Um, but all these different groups uh, were invited to uh, participate. It was invite only. So it wasn't a public testimony that was being uh, entertained. It was uh, invite only testimony. So you're talking about parents and teachers and Dr. LeGarrette King to talk about what the experience had been. And it was open to the public to view. Uh, and so I, I watched it. I thought it was a very interesting hearing. Um, you know, of course, we're, we're 
uh, doing a, a sunshine project uh, here at the Institute, the Show Me Curricula project. And so what I was hearing was, uh, in, in part, what I already knew, and it's that CRT is in the classroom. The 1619 project is in the classroom. Uh, we know Hazelwood, Columbia, uh, Kansas City, uh, and others are using the 1619 project curricula. We know that uh, there are a number of districts that are using um, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, materials for their teachers that I think would uh, concern parents. I think I'll give you an example in St. Louis Eagle College Prep, uh, which provided this information to their to their credit when I asked for it, because not all schools are, and districts are doing this. They teach their kids that, uh, or pardon me, they teach their teachers that white supremacy culture is ingrained in our institutions, that uh, there's internalized racial superiority for, uh, for white people, that they're told that they have uncapped possibility, uh, that they uh, can get ahead through work and merit, and that there's a cycle of oppression that uh, oppresses folks who are not white. Um, I think that the hearing itself demonstrated very, very clearly that other people are seeing this in different ways in dis different districts. Uh, and, and some of it was new information to me. Most of it was something that we were starting to observe just simply based off the responses that we've gotten. Again, we sent out 2000 some odd requests to schools, 500 some odd requests to, to the district offices themselves. Uh, and, and still, I mean, we're getting a lot of resistance to, to these uh, requests. We had uh, Lee Summit wants $35,000 a quarter for their lesson plan. So $140,000 for the year. Uh, and I think when you take the, the interest from uh, Jefferson City, the interest from parents and teachers of this issue and the resistance of some schools and districts to our request for information, I think this is going to be a topic that is going to extend well into next year. Um, I, I do think it's really important, though. Even, so Dr. Laguerre King didn't uh, accept the invitation to this hearing, according to the chair of the committee. Um, and so the, the hearing itself was, from a uh, uh, perspective uh, standpoint, very one-sided. Uh, there needs to be a full-throated conversation about uh, this topic from both sides, uh, because I think that, uh, you know, these are important issues about, you know, what are, what are we teaching kids? And for me, you know, I have, I have problems and concerns with the content of CRT, but my primary objection at, at, at this point is that there isn't the kind of transparency that ought to be occurring in response to questions about curricula. Parents are asking about this as well, and they're being greeted with similar kinds of resistance from a lot of these schools and districts. And I, I, I've talked about this on the radio before, but I think it's terribly important that the state of Missouri undertakes a project to have radical transparency in government uh, and, and require, create a culture of transparency the, so that taxpayers and parents uh, can know where their money is going. Taxation is money taken by force. That's what it is. And so the least that these government entities can do is provide a clear accounting of how they're spending that money. And in local government, it's, you know, it's publishing their checkbook. In education, it's publishing their checkbook and publishing exactly what's being taught in the classroom. And, you know, when a school district, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a big city or a small city, in Morgan County R1, uh, just outside of uh, Jefferson City, 
uh, wanted fifteen thousand dollars for for their records, and I, I think that that is the wrong way to approach government. We need transparency in government. We need to have a full throated conversation about this topic. Uh, and uh, I think that it was clear from the hearing and from my my conversations with other people that this is an issue that is not going to go away. And I think the government uh, needs to be very one transparent about what's happening, and two, I think it needs to engage this issue uh, very. Uh, forthrightly next year. I have something, I want to point out something though. The one good thing about Eagle, Eagle College Prep is that it's a charter school. Parents aren't compelled to send their children there. And if parents find out that the curriculum or the teacher training is something that they disagree with, they have every opportunity to disenroll their child. So I do know that many St. Louis charter schools do have a focus that's geared towards social justice issues. And I think a lot of parents gravitate to them for that reason, but certainly if a parent disagreed, at least with a charter school, they have the option of leaving. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, I think that's one thing that I, I would have less of a concern if parents had clear options. They could take their kids and take them to the educational opportunities that best serve their needs and, and, and best serve their worldview. And unfortunately, we, we simply just don't have that. And, and you're, you're exactly right. I think there's at least one other charter school in, in the St. Louis area. Uh, it might be City Garden, that I think anti-racism is actually a part of their mission. Uh, and again, the, the phrase anti-racism can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but the, these, are, these are topics that I think people are just kind of realizing are out there. And um, at least in, in the case of charter schools, um, you at least can, can well, if you don't like it, you can leave. Uh, that's not often or always the case in Missouri when you're talking about a district school. Um, and, uh, the, the, you know, private schools and charter schools, I think that those are uh, places where parents can kind of self-sort into what kind of education, what kind of environment they want their kids in. But un unfortunately, you know, the vast majority of kids in, in Missouri don't have those kinds of options. And I think that that would be a, a school choice is a good safety valve uh, for some of the more, you know, pernicious uh, concerns about uh, some of these programs. And I think that if there was more school choice, I think the districts would maybe be a little bit more mindful about trying to impose uh, curricula or ideologies on kids that parents might be concerned about, but frankly, don't have any other option. Patrick, was it made clear if they plan to have additional hearings? Yes, yes, it was. Now, of course, the legislature is out of session right now. And so um, there isn't any legislation that is uh, on deck. Uh, I, I believe there was at least one piece of legislation that was filed during the special session that dealt with CRT. Of course, it wasn't part of the special session call, so it wasn't addressed. There was at least an amendment that was uh, proposed in the regular session earlier this year. So there is language that's floating out there that deals directly with CRT. And I, that is one approach that I think that a number of legislators, perhaps already a majority of both chambers are, are starting to find attractive. But to me, I, 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 transparency is such a huge part of this. Actually having teeth and requiring uh, the publication of curricula I think would be great, but in, in any case, instilling a culture of transparency in government, however you get there, in your reforms. I think there need to be some serious discussions about that. And like Susan says, I, I think that a big part of this discussion, especially when it comes to just school districts, 
is the question of choice. And the more choice you can have in education, I think the less of a problem, you know, these district curricular programs or these school programs that, you know, kids are compelled to be a part of. I think it becomes less of a problem because one, parents are, uh, uh, you know, can, can move their kids and two, districts are going to probably craft their curricula accordingly because parents now have options. And I would say, you know, for, for kids who don't have options right now, I think probably what's a high priority to a lot of parents is making sure that their children are in a learning environment that's nurturing their own individual capacities and teaching them a, a full and accurate history of the United States, uh, but not engaging in things like collective guilt and, and things that kind of lump people together. And this seems like a uh, good part to remind everyone that the governor did sign HB 349 last week. So um, I know not the expansive school choice legislation that uh, we all were hoping for, but it's a, it's a place to start. So moving to wrap up, Susan, what are you looking forward to in the next week? Some states have started releasing preliminary test score data from last year. It's uh, not good. And um, those are the states that have been you know, brave enough to get it together and release it. Missouri districts had until June 15th to test as many students as they could get to come into the buildings to be tested. I hope that DESE starts putting those data out soon so that we know where we, you know, where we stand uh, educationally as a state so that we can also target efforts to students who need it the most and we can start trying to recoup some of this learning loss. So I just mostly hope that Desi has the forthrightness to get the data and get it out there. Patrick. Um, more critical race theory data accumulation. Uh, we're, we're starting to get kind of toward the end of the beginning of the project. Um, I, I we're trying to chase down uh, all the districts and schools that have responded not at all. Uh, and of course, under the Sunshine Law, uh, they are required to respond within three days. It's now been more than 30 days. Uh, and so uh, a lot of follow-ups are, are forthcoming, but um, a lot of CRT stuff right now, uh, a lot of housing stuff that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, uh, that's also very important. It relates to a lot of what Aaron's been talking about, um, but it's, it's going to be a busy week, a busy uh, next month. Uh, but I'm looking forward to sharing with the, the public what we're finding. And Aaron, what are you keeping tabs on? Well, I'd say on the data front, in the next week, or really next week to two, uh, we're going to find out what happened to U.S. gross domestic product first quarter of this year. That, that'll kind of be the latest sense of how well the, the recovery is progressing. And then in about two weeks, we're going to see what happened to yet another month of jobs data. Is it going to be kind of lackluster, another disappointment, or will there be signs of those, I believe, 26 states that have un unemployment benefit uh, supplements? Will that show us some acceleration in return to work that we desperately need? All right, great. Well, Aaron Headland, Patrick Ishmael, and Susan Pennegrass, thank you all very much.